0: Welcome to the Daily Stoic Podcast, where each weekday we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, a short passage of ancient wisdom designed to help you find strength and insight here in everyday life. And on Wednesdays, we talk to some of our fellow students of ancient philosophy, well-known and obscure, fascinating and powerful. With them, we discuss the strategies and habits that have helped them become who they are and also to find peace and wisdom in their actual lives. But first, we've got a quick message from one of our sponsors. everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com stoic. That's linkedin.com stoic to post your job for free terms and conditions apply. This is the opinion to care about. The knock against the Los Angeles Rams for seasons now is that they've traded away too many of their first round draft picks. Monday morning quarterbacks and living room GMs seem to be convinced that they know better. And so does most of the sports media who hasn't been afraid to criticize the team's moves, especially after setbacks and losses. Les Snead, the GM of the Rams, who I interviewed on the Daily Stoic podcast back in August, told us his strategy for ignoring the noise while building his second Super Bowl team in four years. I've taken a lot of the wisdom from the Stoics. He said I intentionally practice stoicism enough to know: okay, this comment or this tweet or this simple take shouldn't disrupt. Or even ruffle my emotion. I'm also aware that good television requires debate. Someone has to take the side that the Rams are doing cool things, and somebody has to take the side that they're not. Then they banter about it. That's all just noise that is part of being in this business. And if it gets you to doubt what you're doing, your process was probably a little bit flawed. And we should remember what Marcus Aurelius pointed out, that while we all care about ourselves a lot, For some strange reason, we often value other people's opinions of ourselves, of our actions, and our choices more than our own. We cede authority to and accept the premise of arguments from people who have no idea what they're talking about. When you know what you're doing, Les explained... You have to let your competence double as armor against criticism and complaints. It's not that he's egotistical or that he thinks he's better than anyone else who has his kind of job. It's that he knows there was a well-thought-out strategy in place that guided their decisions to trade away those first and second round picks. In short, the, the Rams' view is that since drafting in the early rounds is so hit or miss, they'd rather trade for proven players than gamble on the potential of a first rounder in order to win right now. And with this, he can rest easy and move confidently in the work still in front of him. A stoic knows what they're doing. They don't wing it. They don't react emotionally or do things without thinking about them. They have a process. This is not just a better way to make decisions. It's also a better way to live with those decisions, no matter their outcome, even when they're misunderstood, even when they're doubted. You don't have time to care about what other people think about the things that you know. You can't afford to spare the energy or the effort required to respond because you need every bit of it to get better, to make the next set of important decisions. It's your opinion, your standards, your strategy that you should care about most. Those are the things that are going to help you win right now. Uh, And with the Rams in the Super Bowl this weekend, do check out my interview with Les Snead on the Daily Stoke Podcast. You can check that out uh, at the link below. You can also just check it out by going to dailystoic.com slash Les, L-E-S dash Snead, S-N-E-A-D. I was trying to think about when I read the book Shop Class as Soulcraft. And I don't think it could have been in college because it came out after I left college. But as I grabbed my copy off the shelf... Uh, we sell it here in the Painted Porch also, but I, I grabbed my copy because I had a bunch of notes in it. it. had this big sticker on it that said, like, college-used textbook. So I must have bought it, like, used on Amazon or something. I don't know, but uh, I got an old copy uh, or a, a very worn copy, and then I put some miles on it because I just, I loved this book. And I was thinking about interesting people I wanted to have on the podcast, and I I just recommended the book to a friend of mine, and I thought, man, uh, I should have Matthew Crawford on and uh, i reached out and he was excited to come on matthew crawford he's an american writer research fellow at the institute for advanced studies in culture at the university of virginia he majored in physics and then turned to political philosophy he has a phd from the university of chicago and on top of all this he's a motorcycle mechanic his uh first book shop class as soul An inquiry into the value of work was an instant bestseller And then he followed that up with the world beyond your head and why we drive toward a philosophy of the open road. I was really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Matthew is someone who has inspired me to think about things I do with my hands, how I structure my life uh, in a lot of ways. And uh, I'm a big fan. This was an exciting book. When I was thinking about books to stock in the painted porch, and I was thinking what I wanted in the philosophy section that wasn't just a bunch of dead old people. Um, This was one of the first books that I thought of because it's a uh, really accessible, practical book. It's what philosophy is supposed to do. It's supposed to change how we think about what we do and make us better at what we do and hopefully make us better citizens in the world. And that's what we talk about in today's episode. You can go to Matthew's website at MatthewBCrawford.com, or you can pick up his wonderful book, Shop Class as Soulcraft at The Painted Porch, at ThePaintedPorch.com. Anywhere books are sold. If you want to get a used copy on Amazon, I guess you could do that too. Uh, I'm sure Matthew would appreciate the slightly more sustainable approach in theory. It's better for the author if you buy a new copy. Uh, Support Matthew's great writing and enjoy this interview with the one and only Matthew Crawford on Shop Class at Soulcraft. So uh, I thought I'd go way, way inside baseball uh, to start. I was flipping back through the book. I must have read the book in college because I, I, I have the, uh, I, I have like a, a used college edition that I don't remember, but um, I, I read it many years ago. And as I was going back through, there's this one little section where you talk about some of the, how you got all your tools or how you paid for all of them or something. And then you um a grant that you got that was originally supposed to be for a book about Plutarch. <laughs> yeah. I want to nerd out about this because I would love to read that book. So tell, t- t- tell me what that was and uh, let's talk about Plutarch.
1: Wow. Okay. Um, that's it's been uh, 20 years, but I'll, I'll try. So, yeah, I was at the University of Chicago. I was writing a, a, a dissertation, PhD, on... Um, On ancient political thought, and Plutarch became intriguing to me because, well, for a number of reasons. But for one thing, he's writing at this time; uh, he's he's writing around 100 A.D. Just to put it in perspective, so this is a time when uh, you know Rome rules the world. Obviously, this is sort of the peak of of Roman Empire, and he is a Greek. And the Greek cities have been subdued by Roman rule, which is a little hard for them because they, of course, thought of themselves as the real ass kickers uh, of the world. You know, sort of the Athenian empire was the, sort of this shining moment that they're clinging to. And uh, Plutarch finds that the whole political psychology of the Greeks is kind of obsolete. Uh, They cling to this idea, they tend to engage in a lot of sort of factional fight amongst themselves in these uh, Greek cities, and that just invites the Romans to come and put it down brutally. So he's kind of saying, as a um, subject people, you need to reconsider what uh, courage looks like, what... um, what love looks like. And that's where it got really weird and interesting. And that became the focus of the dissertation.
0: Interesting. No, I I think what what jumped out at me is like, if I was to think of like what philosopher or writer I might suspect that someone like you would be really into, Plutarch might be at the top of my list. Just, and I don't know what I have to base this on, but I feel like Plutarch was sort of a a much more hands-on philosopher. Even though he was Greek, it didn't feel like he was, um, you know, sort of very abstract. He was very practical. I mean, even just the fact that he was interested in the philosophy of like political life, like philosophy for the actual ruling of an empire, as opposed to merely the philosophy of ideas. There there always seemed to me to be an immensely practical and down to earth grittiness to Plutarch.
1: I like that because it fits with his method, right? About half of his corpus consists of these lives, uh, these biographies that he wrote. So it's a very sort of sociological and um, sort of phenomenological approach. How How do the permanent problems of existence show up within a particular life? And it's, um, I think, it's not merely a pedagogical uh, kind of device. I think, I mean, I, I've tried to, I, I guess, emulate him in that sense of treating the concrete as um, you know, sort of the way into um, the most important questions. Because if you know, if it doesn't sort of manifest concretely somehow in life, then I guess there's a risk of just kind of going off into some kind of mental masturbation.
0: You know. That's right. It's, it's like um, he's an anthropologist writing philosophy. And and he does seem to be uh, he, I, th- th- when he's talking about really simple, uh, simple is the wrong. wrong but when, he, when he's talking about down to earth, the lives that I think really sing from Plutarch, Arcado when he's talking about the Spartans, you know, they they he, he's really interested in those sort of active uh real I mean they all tended to be guys, but he, he's interested in in like the guys guys of philosophy. Maybe you know he, there's no uh, Plutarch's Lives of Socrates, he's interested in Cato or uh you know Leonidas or something like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, somehow it's in In the act of life of public engagement, that um, I don't know that we see the man in full, right? And uh, someone has to put their you know if they have a claim to wisdom, well let's let's see how it plays out in the real world. I think the problem of self delusion is really uh, has to be kept front and center. For any thinker, Um, you can wander into a kind of garden of, you know, self-consistent fantasy uh, and, you know, to to bring it into the world of deeds uh, offers a kind of check on your own subjectivity.
0: Ultimately, uh, Plutarch has to sort of practice what he preaches in that he's uh, he's a politician. He's like mayor or governor of sort of some some province. Right. He actually is uh, in a position of leadership as opposed to just uh, a writer about leadership, ultimately.
1: Yeah, he was he was a man of affairs and. And. Yeah, I don't, you know, you may know more about his actual life than I do. I didn't, I didn't make that a focus. Although it would have, you know, someone should write a life of Plutarch.
0: That's what I was hoping you were writing when I saw that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So that would, yeah, it sort of gets at the, uh, the figure of the, the public intellectual.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, I think what I liked so much about your book and so much about your writing, and I think that's also what I like about Plutarch is, is the idea that, philosophy is not what happens in philosophy class, that actually life is the philosophy class. Or as you're saying, you know, shop class is is where you work on your soul. Um, How did you sort of come? I I imagine you you studied philosophy. How did you come to think of philosophy as something very different than I I would say most people or most of your peers uh, do think about it?
1: Well, I think it was just a, a kind of set of accidents in a way. <clears throat> I mean, I didn't, uh, I didn't feel very well suited to being a professor. Um, I didn't, it, it never really appealed to me. But, you know, I just felt this urgent need to read the most important books and to do so with guidance, uh, with teachers, um, and to have a kind of apprenticeship in thinking. Um, but, you know, I, I, uh, there's such a glut of PhDs, so there I am trying to get a, you know, a professor job with everybody else. And I never, it wasn't a fully sincere effort on my part to, to get such a job. So I worked at a think tank for a little bit and hated that. And uh, so that's when I quit to open the bike shop. And that turned out to be, for a while, you know, um, a pretty good thing, I guess at that point I felt more like a kind of dissident uh, thinker outside the system. And that's a great, I mean, it's it's a precarious position to be in if you're, but on the other hand, it's very freeing because you're not, you know, you're not trying to please some tenure committee or peer reviewed journals or something like that. And to my taste, academic um, thought has gotten quite constricted and I guess there's a couple of problems. One is a professionalization, uh, which is inherently kind of you know policing the boundaries of a discipline. And the other, of course, is the politicization, where it seems like everything has to somehow support the regime, you know, broadly understood.
0: Yeah, it, the, the professionalization of philosophy is interesting to me because so many of the great philosophers in the ancient world, philosophy was... The hobby, and uh, there was some actual profession through which they were understanding and applying the philosophy. Whether they were politicians, or whether they were generals, whether they were, um, you know, advisors or diplomats or whatever, Um, they—it's like they had philosophy is not supposed to be the job, right? The you're supposed to have a different job that helps you understand the the philosophical ideas
1: yeah well a moment ago you used the word anthropological, and I think that's right i mean to you know to be a knower of human beings requires intercourse with human beings um,
0: yeah yeah and and there's not a faker intercourse than the academic classroom setting right where well
1: i i i well actually I want to pull back now from from that thought because. I think at its best, the seminar room can be a pretty magical place. Um, I think you have to have a kind of rare teacher in a rare environment where the students feel that um, the most urgent matters are at stake, and we we are creating an environment here of respect and seriousness and. Um, and really, searching, and I've had I've had seminars like that, and they were really something.
0: No, no, I I agree that the classroom is a way to teach. I'm saying that the professor uh, that can't be their primary lens through which they understand and interact with human beings. Like so, I think when you look at the ancient world, it's it's the um, it's their experiences out in the world that then qualifies a person to speak philosophically, right? So your, your idea of intercourse, like you're, you're running the motorcycle shop, you're dealing with yourself, you're dealing with the machines, you're dealing with the customers. This is giving you a lens through which to understand the world that you then communicate in the book. A book is academic. If you're teaching a class on shop classes, soul craft, that, that would be fine too. But it, it, you couldn't have discovered what you discovered in the setting in which you... You know, in the book itself, you had to go out and do something.
1: Yeah, I think an in, in iterated process of um, kind of uh, acting in the world and reflecting upon it in a kind of dialectic is how you kind of close in on some kind of insight. the The action provides a kind of check on again this tendency toward self enclosure and fantasy. Um, but also experience in the world is always ambiguous and requires interpretation and reflection. And that's where other people can become very helpful interlocutors, uh, who will help you kind of clarify your own experience by talking it through, considering it from different angles.
0: Yeah. I I think about this, like I have this, this little bookstore here in Texas. I, I had a marketing business for many years. Although I would be writing to a a large general audience, it was often those individual one-on-one interactions with a troublesome client or with, you know, the fact that I've got to repair the roof on the building or or whatever. It's like the things that I'm experiencing then allow me to have a sort of a specificity that I can generalize out in the writing. So I've got to imagine as you're working on someone's motorcycle or something or you're, you're, you're dealing with some issue that's then informing what you're writing or thinking about.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's all a big mess. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, you know, you try to make sense of it. That's, I think that's what writing is good for is like taking the big mess of experience and thought and trying to impose a coherence on your life. I mean, if, if your writing has a, you know, an autobiographical element in it, then it's, becomes this attempt to almost create a work of art out of, out of a life that while you're in it always feels, um, you know, you're fixated on the future or regrets about the past. And to bring it into view as a kind of whole that makes sense, that's, I guess that's the, the task of, uh, of living altogether. together.
0: Does writing feel like a craft to you? Like, is is there something similar to sort of working on machines and then trying to solve the puzzle that is a, a piece of writing? Uh, I would say so
1: in this in this sense that, um, you know, in in what I really loved when I quit the think tank job and started the bike shop, you know, think tanks are they're inherently sort of corrupt because, you know, somebody's paying the bills and they want. You know, you start with conclusions and then come up with the arguments that support them. Um, Whereas in fixing motorcycles, you know, either the bike starts and it runs right or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, you can't weasel your way out of the fact. You can't sort of interpret it away. So there's a reality principle that you're held responsible to. And writing for me is very much like that. Um, I don't want to merely write You know, elegantly or something like that, or eloquently, um, but to really get at uh, truth, I guess. I mean, it it sounds pretentious, maybe, to say so, but uh, so it's a very um, it's it's a it's a painful process. I I love writing, but it's also just really hard work. I mean, I throw away probably seventy five percent of what
0: get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more, all in one place, delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter, just like a couple of weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I DoorDashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10 when you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash. That that's code Daily stoic Order using DoorDash today for eligible users only. Terms apply. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month, show your support for the show. That's talkspace.com slash stoic. Yeah, and I think there's also the the commercial element one might think is corruptive, but is actually, I think, important. So yeah, if if the the bike doesn't work, the customer doesn't pay you, like it, you know, the, the, the system doesn't work. I think there's something I've always found to be a bit alienating and weird about a lot of professional philosophy or you're reading some book and it's it's obvious that the the idea of the reader never occurred to the person writing it. You know, they, they sort of comfortably wrote a book, uh, knowing that it would sell 200 copies, right? The idea of like making something that worked for regular human beings who might want to apply these ideas in their actual life sort of doesn't occur. I think too often in academia, not just philosophy in, in all elements. And so to me, and I think your books are a testament to that. When you can get something that works, that then appeals to people who who don't read books about philosophy, that's like one of the toughest puzzles there is to is to crack. I mean, you you wrote a best selling book that has the word soulcraft in the title. That's a that's a pretty tiny target to 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 hit. That that's not easy to do.
1: Yeah, I think you can. Uh, so the idea of commercial viability uh, for philosophical writing is an interesting one. Um, I think, I think you're right that if you're getting at something, um, real, one hopes that that will be accessible to a lot of people and therefore, you know, maybe viable commercially. But then there's this other question that kind of overlays that, and that is what is valued in the marketplace and that isn't necessarily line up with, you know, your aspirations as a writer. I mean, there is such a thing as, you know, just kind of trying to pander. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, these, these two things, I think you, you hold intention, and you're, uh, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I feel like I've never dumbed anything down. Uh and that's I guess I'm, I'm proud of that. also it just it doesn't wouldn't come naturally to me. It'd be painful to give something less than the most you know subtle and finesse uh, and hard um, account that I can. Uh, but somehow the, the process of clarifying my own thought tends to produce something that you know is clear enough, I guess that, that other people can.
0: And it. No, that, that calling that attention, I think, is well said is probably a little bit like Aristotle's mean, where it's sort of <clears throat> something in between doing it exactly the way you want to do it and then doing it in a way that is considerate or respectful of where the audience is and, and how that idea can be made accessible and usable for them. I think it was Epicurus who said, vain is the word of the philosopher which does not heal the suffering of man. I think you could have a pretty expanded definition of what what heal or suffering is, but I think the idea is that the the purpose of the writing uh, should be to have an impact on actual people's lives. And that is easier said than done.
1: Yeah. And you you mentioned suffering. Um, (laughs) So, right, there's a kind of therapeutic... um, impulse i think in a lot of stoic thought and um and some of the other schools um sort of that were around the same time the the cynics and the epicureans um and it's funny we're living at a time right now where i think the idea of you know uh sort of fragile selves in need of um Therapy has become so prevalent it's really um, i think distorted our view of ourselves as being uh kind of a, a very little capacity to endure adversity
0: yeah resilient uh, we don't seem to be a particularly resilient population at the moment it's very fragile and uh very averse to anything challenging or uncomfortable
1: yeah, and I think that's um you know, one thing I've I've written about is what I call safetyism. Um, there's this weird dynamic wherein the safer we become, the more intolerable any remaining risk appears, and I think so. There's a kind of w- strange feedback loop there, and I think one way to, to to try to understand it is that it that dynamic gears into a whole set of material interests. Right, we have. You know, the helping professions who are determined to make us think of ourselves as, uh, you know, in need of, uh, of help and as fragile. And then there's the whole therapeutic state that's kind of, you know, think about the whole COVID regime where we've had this um, extraordinary extension of expert jurisdiction over every domain of life that seems like a consummation of this longer trend of kind of giving up our own judgment to, uh, to experts and sort of giving up on the idea that we can uh, determine what's appropriate risk for ourselves.
0: But don't you think part of that is because uh, one cannot determine, uh, in, in something like a pandemic, it's very difficult to separate one's personal risk tolerance with the consequences of those decisions on other people.
1: Yeah, right. It's a, it's a collective action problem because yes. it's contagious, very much so. And right, none of us are epidemiologists, so there's, there's necessarily a certain amount of deference uh, that's incumbent on us. But what, what's so extraordinary is we've seen how the kind of... Um, apparatus of science has been bent toward purposes that don't this at times seem flatly anti-scientific. And it's, it's this, um, phenomena where science, you know, with a capital S has been pressed into duty as authority. And if you think about it, you know, science as a mode of inquiry is almost, um, you know, the whole idea of authority is anathema to it. It's a sort of freedom of the mind. So it's like it, science has to become something more like a religion in order to serve the function that we've assigned it.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. I wonder how much of this is a result of different, of different entities uh, abdicating their duty, thus forcing other entities into inappropriate roles. So like the reason the judiciary is so political is because the legislatures have ceased to do their jobs, right? Or the reason that um, companies, uh, like the, a corporate culture, is now politicized and companies are woke or whatever you want to call it, is because the employees in those companies are frustrated that they can't affect political change through the ordinary means, right? And so I wonder when the legislatures or the president or also, just like basic human beings abdicate their responsibilities or obligations to each other, it forces that energy to go to inappropriate places. And uh, I wonder if really a lot of the trouble we're having is because nobody is doing their job and then inappropriate entities are stepping, stepping up and trying to, to fill that breach.
1: Yeah, I think we've seen a, a fairly wide-ranging transfer of sovereignty from democratic decision-making to technocratic bodies that operate really quite insulated from the pressures of democratic politics. Um, and this actually relates to the theme. So my, my most recent book is titled Why We Drive. And it, you know, it, it like the first two books, it's, it's about individual agency. So the, the polemical hook that I Open with is the prospect of driverless cars. And, you know, human beings are actually pretty good at driving and it up. Pretty feels... impressive
0: considering it's not like something we evolved to do. It's it's kind of magical.
1: Well, yeah. And there's actually some great cognitive science on our capacity to mutually predict one another's behavior as this kind of evolved capacity of our brains. And it's it's kind of scaffolded by social norms that help us predict one another's behavior. And if you're ever in an intersection in Rome or Bombay, uh, and you see, you know, this, these unregulated intersections where, you know, there's no lines, there's no lights, there's no curbs, there's no nothing, and you've got buses and you know, donkeys and uh, cars and bicycles and pedestrians all just kind of finding their way through. It's, it's actually it can be beautiful to behold. You're 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 witnessing the human capacity for an improvisational cooperation. And I, the, but when this, you know, when one of these tech guys um, looks at that, he he's horrified because it looks chaotic. It looks messy. Right. Uh, there was this episode where an experimental self-driving car by Google came to an intersection. It was a four-way stop. And so it came to a full stop and waited for the other cars to do the same before proceeding. So it's following the rules. But, of course, that's not what people do. You know, they kind of roll up on the intersection, see what the situation is, maybe roll through. There's ambiguous cases of -of right-of-way. So what do we do? We make eye contact. Maybe someone gives a little nod or waves the other person through. But the Google car just got paralyzed and it sort of melted down. (laughs) And what was interesting was that the guy in charge of the experiment said that what he had learned from this is that human beings need to be less idiotic. Now, of course, what he meant by that is we need to behave more like robots, uh, be rule followers. And completely invisible to him was this distinctly human form of intelligence. And I think, uh, you know, the the ambition to do away with the necessity of that kind of um, intelligence is politically significant. Um, Tocqueville, when he went around America, was very impressed with the observation that it's in these sort of everyday practical activities requiring cooperation that the democratic character is formed the ability to work things out among ourselves
0: i was uh, i was thinking about what you said about safetyism I, I dropped my my five-year-old off today at he goes instead of going to kindergarten he goes to what's called like outdoor nature school and it's an outdoor school uh th- there's no desks or chairs and they just they play but they they go on hikes and they learn things they have lessons and uh, as i was dropping him off uh you know there was uh, a fire like in in the in the campground there's a fire which sort of makes you a little uncomfortable as a parent the the teachers you know shaving kindling with a very sharp knife and then she's setting it down on the thing there's trees that could fall and cliffs and mud and water and stuff and there was an, a part of me that was uncomfortable because as a parent all you want is your kids to be safe all the time and then The other part of me that was like, this is so amazing and so perfect, such a better actual preparation for the world. And then the other part of me was sort of chuckling at the fact that, you know, sure, there are dangers from the things I just said, but also in the middle of a pandemic, being outside all day instead of being in a small, effectively windowless, poorly ventilated room is also much safer. So it, it also strikes me that oftentimes In the name of safety, we actually do things that are profoundly unnatural or unsafe. and We just get normalized to them so they don't strike us as odd.
1: Yeah, I think think one problem is that we get fixated on one danger in particular and sort of, of tunnel vision. And, you know, so by way of comparison, if every hundred yards as you're driving down the road, there was a giant flashing billboard that said how many traffic deaths there have been this month. Well, people would just, you know, just stop driving. And that's kind of, I think what we've seen in the pandemic. I mean, the whole media and bureaucratic uh, symbiotic sort of ecosystem has fixated on this one thing. And we sort of lose sight of the fact that we accept all kinds of risks in daily life that are comparable in their likelihood. So, um, you know, so the lack of a kind of holistic picture of the risks that we are, that we take on just for the sake of living and doing meaningful activities. Um, Yeah, that's, that's for real.
0: Yeah, the the other thing the pandemic has done for me is just to, to maybe the flip side of what you're just saying is yeah we we were normalized to a whole bunch of risks that maybe uh, that that looking at afresh give us a different perspective. So for instance, we get uh, very concerned. I don't know, vaping comes out. So someone invents vaping, and we're very concerned with all the deaths, uh, you know, or uh, negative health uh, benefits. Uh, to say vaping, which I'm sure are real, and I, I wouldn't vape and wouldn't want my kids to vape. But, um, you know, if alcohol was invented today, we would be horrified by it, right? So there's all these things that that we've just become normalized to that have existed for a very long time. They're sort of just functions of society that are totally and utterly insane uh, if, you, if you had any kind of perspective about them.
1: Yeah, and there's also, you know, there's... There's institutional opportunity in picking out one risk and you know and kind of uh, out of context in such a way that it becomes really scary because that that's what facilitates this kind of transfer of agency uh well both sort of individual judgment to experts and politically from democratic decision making to technocratic ones so it's not like all of this is completely innocent, there, there is um, a political dynamic to it.
0: The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts, discounts for having multiple vehicles your policy being a homeowner and more so just like your favorite podcast Progressive will be with you 24/7 365 days a year so you're protected no matter what multitask right now quote your car insurance at progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates national average 12 month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022 potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy, get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. These tools would have been super helpful to me when I was growing The Daily Stoke, when I was writing my first book, and in fact, have been right? The Daily Soak is built around email marketing. That may well be how you heard of this very podcast. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Well, the other thing I think about with COVID, so like, you know, I think the death toll is like 1,200 to 1,500 a day, which is, is horrifying when you think about it. But that's roughly about how many people or, or less than like die of heart disease. So all the arguments that you hear about like, hey, um, you know, this is a public health crisis. This affects all of us. Nobody has the right to overrun the hospital system, etc. And then you're sort of like, wait, we've become very passively accepting of a rolling public health crisis, the number one cause of death in the United States, heart disease, that we've just accepted as being normal and, uh, you know, a, f- a byproduct of modern society, which, you know, if we were to focus the amount of energy that we focused on COVID, if, if we really address the root causes of that issue, would also have a transformative you know, impact on society and and a a lot of the same moral arguments that people are making about COVID protocols and public health responses to that uh, could be addressed to other public health crises that are just as important.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, standing behind all of this, uh, I think, is the fact that we modern people uh, have a hard time accepting death. I mean, just the reality of it, right? This is all Kind of frantic um, <laughs> evasion of this existential fact that that we are going to die. But you know, to say that, of course, is not to be pro-death and to say you you know <laughs> don't don't try to uh, you know be maximize your health. But it is to kind of point out that um, it, these risks being. We have very little perspective on them. And I think to, um, to live well necessarily involves uh, accepting risk. Um, to try right. to eliminate risk is to have a kind of half-life. Um, I mean, <laughs> you mentioned alcohol. I certainly <laughs> wouldn't want to live without it.
0: No, it's, it's funny, though. Like, uh, we are terrified of death. And then profoundly unhealthy day to day and those the, those two things are not just in tension with each other but very unhealthy or, or ve- very uh hypocritical so it's like if you're so afraid of risk and so afraid of death, um, you know what are you doing stuff in your face with the, this junk food that will inevitably kill you <laughs> uh, prematurely uh no doubt so it's funny how you would think if you were if you were rationally terrified of death, you'd live a very antiseptic, uh, uh, aesthetic, uh, healthy existence. But that's not what most people do. Most people live recklessly with their individual choices and then go, someone should take care of this for me. Mm.
1: So in the in the most recent book, Why We Drive, I talk about the spirit of play, which is very much connected to... Um, risk-taking and that the tension of not knowing how things are going to come out, you know, in, in sport. And, um, there's a Dutch historian, uh, Johan Huizinga who wrote beautifully about play as the basis of civilization, that it's sort of the origins of social order, uh, playing games, you know, they have some rules and within that, those rules, it's, uh, it's a contest for honor. Um and you can't have play without putting something at stake, you know, without without risk. And, and very often it's a risk of, of physical harm. And you know, that spirit of play is what gives rise to culture.
0: So I uh, I what I loved most about about your uh shop classes Soulcraft book, I guess you're not technically outside because it's a. Uh... You know, you're in a shop usually, but there does seem to be something special about being outdoors or at least not in a perfectly uh, sanitized uh, modern office building. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I couldn't. I've I've had a few office jobs and there was just like something physically like I can't do this. I cannot sit here uh and i think you know there's a lot of us are simply built that way and i think there's a lot of kids sitting at school just bored out of their freaking minds um because you know the the disposition of a scholar is a fairly rare thing that's not the typical human Way. And so the idea that you're going to learn by sitting in a chair and reading a book or looking at a screen is a fairly novel and unusual idea. And so, what do we do? Well, we medicate kids with Ritalin so we can get them to sit there to try to make up for the fact that this is a fairly unnatural situation we created for ourselves.
0: Yeah, I was I was reading uh, the safety protocols at this this gym uh, and it was like, you know, everyone inside the gym must wear a mask, you know, because of the pandemic. This is a while ago. Um, It's like, except if you're doing the except if you're doing cardio, like on a treadmill. So the first off, the preposterousness of like, that's like the one thing you would not. That's where you're breathing out the most aerosols. But but I was I just remember thinking, you know, you can run outside right? Like you're aware that you can do this activity <laughs> outdoors and not just that you can do it outdoors. It's much better outdoors. Like why, like running on a treadmill is terrible or, or walking on a treadmill is terrible. And so, yeah, it strikes is we take all, we have all these wonderful things being outside, going for a walk, going for a run, you know, and then we find a way to do them in an inferior way <laughs> indoors.
1: Yeah. There was, um, Early in the pandemic, there was a, a meme going around. I only heard about it. But apparently it was a picture of a Peloton class that was being, you know, so it was on these stationary bikes. But yeah. it was being held outdoors of course right. because of the pandemic. And the caption was, you know, something like, on the brink of a
0: great insight. Yes. <laughs> Meaning they're going to go, oh, wait a minute. We could put wheels on these things.
1: <laughs> we could actually go somewhere. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I mean that's that's one of like the I, I feel like in a lot of ways the pandemic was sort of this forced lifestyle experiment and you know working from home instead of a long commute and blah 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 is I think a big breakthrough for a lot of people but it was like hey you know working out in my driveway with a kettlebell is a far uh, superior way of doing it whether I'm doing it at night and I'm looking up at the stars like I was last night or I'm you know doing it in the in in the middle of the summer and feeling the sun on me. Um, is this better than than going into the some basement of a building in new york city and uh you know uh getting sweaty with a bunch of random people who who by the way none of us are communicating we all have headphones we're all pretending that we're alone and like it's just it's just uh, i think there's something special about being outside
1: it's like we've we've trained ourselves into a kind of dependency on like having an official you know pl- designated place like, yes like this kind of Pathetic.
0: <laughs> I think it was Nietzsche who said that only ideas had while walking are of any worth. I to me, ph- philosophy and walking are impossible to separate.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I like that.
0: And then I, I is is uh when you would work in the garage, is is it a solitary experience for you? Like is there something to the solitude of it that's valuable?
1: Uh both valuable and hazardous, I think. Yeah, I ended up just like ranting out loud to myself. And uh, um, I feel like I, I should probably, I, I've had people working with me at times and it's, it's good. Uh, it was you know, good to have other people to check your own thinking and you know, come up against problems and, and get stumped. But uh, yeah, I'm in there mostly just, uh, you know, ranting at the radio <laughs> or something like an old fart
0: yeah i think i think uh like getting lost in there there is something that flow state the solitary flow state where you forget what time it is you forget what's happening uh you forget everything but the task in front of you to me that's like that's like peak performance as a human being do you do you, do you get that when you're when you're working or is it is it you're so uh yeah.
1: It's a fleeting experience. There are times, usually it's, so I do a lot of metal fabrication. um, And it's usually in those, uh, you know, especially if I have something a little bit repetitive, you know, like, you know, set up a jig and drill a whole bunch of the same hole. You know, I wouldn't want to do that all day, every day. But when there is a kind of stretch of time in front of me where I know guess what I'm doing? I'm all set up You get a certain rhythm and I feel my whole body relax. And uh, those are really nice moments to be relieved of, you know, having to constantly, um, there's a lot of just, it's thinking, uh, working, it was very cognitively demanding. But those stretches of time where i can just go a little bit on autopilot are just really nice.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like that zen idea of chop wood, carry water. You're just sort of doing it. It's a little more complex than chopping wood and carrying water, but just like i find like fix uh, when i'm checking or fixing fences on my on my ranch. It's it's like a very menial, menial manual task, but you just sort of get into it because it's so repetitive like you're saying. Mhm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the idea of rhythm, like bodily rhythm, I've yes. become aware is is really valuable. And if I sort of step outside and ask myself, what, what would I look like to a an, an observer? Do I look relaxed? Do I look natural and comfortable in what I'm doing? That's kind of a, a good sort of check to take. And, okay, how can I arrange my, my workspace to be more, I don't know, just more zen or something?
0: Yeah, I think that, to me, that comes back to walking. I think, like, as a sort of a nomadic species that was meant to cover long distances, I think that rhythm, because I definitely feel tapping, I'm tapping into that when I'm walking, like, if I go for a long walk, I think that's the body sort of getting into that, like, space where you're you're effectively traveling,
1: Mm -hmm. even if you're
0: staying still.
1: Somehow what you just said made me think of, sometimes when I'm watching like really top musicians, you know, like total masters, the relaxation in their body is like total. It just looks like so effortless. I just recently watched um, this bass player, Edgar Meyer, and, you know, it's this giant instrument uh, and he's a big guy, but it's almost like it's been incorporated into his body. So there's really high notes, you know, way down on the neck that require a lot of pressure if you've ever tried to play a bass, but it just looks like he's barely touching it.
0: Well, that's what's so, so interesting about music. And I guess a lot of the creative things is, is it's, it's a cognitive task, but then it's also a physical task like metalworking or something, right? Like it, you, 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 there's the physical component of, of the mechanics of actually doing it. And then there's also the inspiration and the creativity and the expression. And it's when those two things become perfectly entwined with each other that I think you get the magical stuff.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, you know, first you lay the groundwork with endless hours of practicing scales as a kind of submission to the mechanical necessities of that particular instrument. It's a long process of just grinding it out but that you know becomes the foundation for uh, for expression and once that you know just the physical part of it has become second nature then you know the the piano player is not thinking about his fingers he's not thinking about the keys his attention is directed to the sound and the music and so it's like his attention is just passing through his hands through the instruments to, to the music. And that's a real uh, shift from what the beginner is doing, which is attending very, you know, very carefully to the clumsy attempts of his hand to produce a sound.
0: Yeah. Although any beginner of music, uh, especially like something like the guitar, the first thing you, you notice or the first thing you feel is the, uh, the calluses developing on your fingers. Because you're, it's it's also that physical tat. Like you're you're doing something with your body or your your fingers that they're not used to doing, and you're putting a stress or doing a damage to them that that they have to toughen themselves up to be able to. To I bet like a mechanic's hands and uh, you know the the hands of a you know a, a bass player or a guitar player. They'd be. I don't know uh, if they'd be if you could distinguish the two. One might be a little dirtier than the other, but uh, I bet they'd have the same same toughness to them.
1: Mm. Yeah, calluses of uh, you know playing a string instrument are so particular. Like there's a little, one little spot on those fingertips. Whereas, yeah. like my hands are just been traumatized in every possible way.
0: Speaking, speaking of starting something, I think one of the things I don't remember if you talk about it in the book, but it does seem important. Um, like being bad at something when you start Mm. strikes me as something that we don't talk enough about. Right. Like, like the, there is, I think, philosophical value in like, not just learning, but like being comfortable with how uncomfortably bad you are at something at the beginning.
1: Yeah. And that, that gets back to what we were talking about earlier of a kind of cultivated fragility that is so sort of widespread society so yeah i have two kids and um you know i i want them to have those experiences of crushing failure and ineptitude um because you know absent those you can have a sort of sense of yourself as um that doesn't match reality and it becomes a crutch you know and then you any experience that where that self-image gets punctured is then really painful. I think you have to experience it early on.
0: Yeah, although let me ask you, I didn't know you had kids. That was something I was thinking about in the book. Like I know you talk about people will go like, well, I don't change my own oil because my, my time is too valuable, right? And, and so they, they sort of rationalize not doing these things because the opportunity costs. I definitely get that. I, I, I have some fond memories of like just fixing fences on my ranch and I was talking to my wife about them a while ago, and she was like, you know what I was doing while you were doing that? Uh, I was taking care of our infant, you know, um, her point being that, like, I was sort of indulging myself, you know, fixing this stuff, getting back to the land, doing this task. But it's not just that there's an opportunity cost to it. There's almost kind of a selfishness to it in a, in a life where we only have so much time. So how how do you think about that?
1: Well, opportunity cost is very real and you can't learn to do everything and get good at it such that you could do it in a reasonable amount of time. So yeah, you have to pick your battles. Um, I guess the sort of extreme on the other side would be um, an ideal of complete uninvolvement, which, um, You know, if you can sort of outsource every uh, skilled activity to some technology or to some, you know, guest worker, uh, then I guess that facilitates, right? I mean, it's a kind of this image of freedom, but underneath the freedom is, I think, a a sort of lack of self-awareness of your dependence on, on others really. Um, Now, of course the fantasy of total self-reliance is just that its a fantasy. So you can, yes, you can try to do everything for yourself, but you know, the metal of those tools was smelted in some foundry and there were miners who dug it out of the earth. So again, you have to kind of widen your field of view to take in your, we are dependent uh, creatures. Uh, there was a very good book called Dependent Rational Animals by Alistair McIntyre.
0: Well, and, and it's probably not honest, right? So we tell ourselves, well, I don't mow my own lawn because I don't have the time. Uh, and then it's like, but did the 30 minutes you saved, did you spend that with your kids or did you spend that on your phone? Like, what, what are you, where are you actually spending the time that you're saving? Are you spending it being present? Are you spending it being available, or are you spending it on more you know digital work or more knowledge work? and that probably if we're being honest, that's where the vast majority of the the time saving goes
1: yeah, and I think we're afflicted with a bad conscience about that, a sort of time guilt uh because we we fuck off so much, right all of yep. us um. Whether it's on the internet. I mean, people used to complain about novel reading as this kind of feminized soft waste of a of a life. Um, now, I think the digital stuff is categorically different because it's designed to maximize time on device, right? The engagement algorithms. I mean, it's it's addictive by design. So that it gets that gets a little sinister.
0: So, how have you thought about teaching your kids about some of these ideas, as far as sort of getting their hands dirty, uh, shop classes, soulcraft? How how do you? I get how you write about it in a book for adults. How do you? How do you teach it to an eight-year-old?
1: I think just by example. um, You know, just you know, something breaks, and hey, look at this! I've got some tools here. We can take this thing apart and see what's going on, and you know, there's not. It's not by argument, by just, but just by, I guess, modeling a, a presumption that the world is intelligible. The things we depend on can be understood if we take the effort, if we take it apart. And um, I mean, just, just yesterday, so my, my wife had taken our car up in the mountains with with chains on the tires and the, the chains came loose and took out the wheel speed sensors and a brake line um anyway she got it towed uh the dealer wanted thirteen hundred dollars to get it back on the road and i fixed it with seventy five dollars worth of parts you know and it, it took about a day but i i sort of i told my daughter look if you have tools, that's the best investment you can make.
0: No, that's interesting. And, and I think also like the Internet is these digital devices. They are also a tool. Right. So you can use YouTube to fuck off all day and watch nonsense. There's also I, I, this kid works for me. He does like sort of handyman tasks uh, with all my different projects. And uh, he doesn't know how to do anything but he teaches himself how to do it from YouTube videos. I'm like, Hey, can you fix this yeah. thing? Or, Hey, I want you to build this for me. You know, he doesn't have any formal training in these things, but he has the tool, which is his phone that is, uh, you know, uh, an infinitely vast library of instructions on how to do stuff.
1: Right? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of YouTube instructional videos. Um, and, you know, in addition to, to YouTube, you have these technical forums that grow up devoted to some very particular thing. So I'm an air-cooled Volkswagen enthusiast. I'm just finishing a, a car I've spent 10 years building. And you go on these forums and, you know, people are going really deep into stuff. And they're also pushing the state of the art. I mean, we're getting 10 times the horsepower out of these engines that they were designed to make and that's it's a kind of folk engineering as i call it where it's you know because of this community sharing knowledge and sort of pushing each other further competitively out of a kind of well it's that spirit of play really um you know it's the honor i guess of of, of reaching certain whatever horsepower numbers or something but it's the, the end result is a just an extraordinary progress in knowledge. And these communities, one thing I like about them is they cultivate a deep cognitive ownership of your car, um, like all the way down, that stands in real contrast to the passivity and dependence of consumer culture.
0: It's it's also humbling. I get this experience reading books too. There's a James Baldwin quote where he says, you know, you think your pain is so special and unique, and then you read, you know, you realize like, hey, other people are going through it. I I always find it hilarious. Your car is doing something weird, or you know, this your your house is making some weird noise, or whatever it is, and you Google it, and it's like not just one person has had this exact problem, but thousands of people have had the exact problem in the exact same way. And uh, by the way, here is the three-step solution yeah. to that thing.
1: Yeah, it makes you you go from feeling totally alone and miserable to yeah, you sort of oh, there's there's a whole there's a whole bunch of people out there got going through the same thing.
0: Yes, yeah. yes, we're all very separate, dealing with the exact same problems. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and Google unites us.
1: Yeah, that is a nice moment. I hadn't thought about that. Where you you feel, I don't know, it's sort of. Feel almost a friendship with these people. Uh, yes. Total stranger simply because you're dealing with the same technical challenge and diagnostic obscurities and scratching your head and beating your head against the wall. And here are some people helping out others. It's great.
0: Yeah. And I, I think it's like, it's an important reminder to be like, this is also true for pretty much every other emotional or physical issue, too. It's not just people who both have. Uh, all-wheel drive Audis that are, uh, that are, de- that are dealing with, with the same problems. It's also people who have been dumped or cheated on or mugged or, you know, any of the terrible things that happen in life. People are quietly struggling with that, too. Mm-hmm. And if we would talk about it or we would ask for help in the way that Googling is effectively asking for help, we'd, we'd be able to help each other, too.
1: Yeah. And that experience of community has become, you know, is, is I think is fairly elusive in real life, yeah uh, so we seek it out online that the facilities for well, that's not the right word. The occasions for um, working together with other people are diminished. you know there's this famous book you probably heard about bowling alone that documented the sort of atrophy of voluntary associations, you know things like volunteer fire. Fighting crews and you know trade unions and mutual aid societies and of course church um, congregations. So we we tend to be quite isolated. Uh, you know, each person in his in his house with his family and a TV or an internet connection. So that can be very, very atomizing and isolating.
0: Yeah, no, it, facilities actually probably is the right word, right? Because you know, in a pri- previous life, you'd be asking that question at the VWF Hall or mm-hmm. the uh, the athletic club that you belong to, or or you know, the bowling alley, as you said. Uh, those, those obviously those connections can't happen at scale at the same way in some sort of local association, uh, some sort of union membership or whatever. But there did used to be those physical locations. And I I mean, especially in California is where I grew up, is like some of those buildings that those clubs or, you know, those um those Mason halls are like incredible, right? Or the the those those old buildings that people would would had to build so they could have a place to go together, you know, uh it's far more meaningful and will have far more longevity than whatever group you you set up on Facebook.
1: One thing I I really missed from the beginning of the pandemic was my bar, you know, <laughs> um, a pub where I you know you'd see the same people every every day five o'clock and yeah, um, there's something about just the embodied presence, you know, sort of seeing regularly the same people and they're not people you would have chosen, right? It's just sure. some random collection based on proximity you know we live in the same neighborhood and so it's an unchosen association and but you but there's a
0: serendipity to that
1: Yeah exactly serendipity is a, I like that word it's uh yeah sort of you, you just sort of throwing yourself into the world and exposing yourself to a kind of chance um you know, the, just the the vagaries of whatever happens to be near you.
0: No, I love that. I mean, even the fact that we're having to record this remotely instead of the same room. There's something. There is something lost in in the atomization of uh, of how we do this stuff.
1: Yeah. It's like yeah. So it's both. It's a. It's a kind of? It's all very mediated and um, kind of distant. But then, the, of course, the scale and the this kind of infinite you you can connect to just about anybody. But I I think also exploding that horizon of, you know, what is possible and what is therefore relevant to me comes with a cost because anything um, sort of merely local and contingent and just happens to be here where I am maybe starts to look um, less appealing simply because I haven't chosen it. So we get into this, mentality of of choosing and you know you're always wondering what could i have chosen that would be better because it's so infinite
0: no uh, what's that that word uh, affluenza but you have the, mm. the the disease of abundance right the disease of choice this is true on dating apps it's true right. on zillow you know because you can see an infinite amount of better things yeah. it makes it very hard to be content with what you have yeah so well, uh, this was amazing. I love the stuff and uh, I'm so glad we got to connect. And I think this is a uh, perennial uh, amazing book, which as I'm flipping through, I can uh, talk about physical. I can see the food that I, I must've been eating some rice when I read this book uh, ten, <laughs> 10 or so years ago, uh, but, but I loved it. And it was, uh, it was an honor to talk.
1: Yeah, well, it was a real pleasure talking with you, Ryan.
0: Hey, it's Ryan. Thank you for listening to The Daily Stoic Podcast. I just wanted to say we so appreciate it. We love serving you. It's an honor. Please spread the word, tell people about it. And this isn't to sell anything. I just wanted to say thank you. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives
1: you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream. So he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart,